The wait is over. The Tour de France is here at last and Flowbikes is the place to be. Watch all 21 stages live and on demand in Canada. In addition to the Canadian-only broadcast, viewers worldwide can have access to exclusive on-site coverage, live watch parties with Mike Woods and Swain Tuft, and a host of other behind-the-scenes content. Plus, Flowbikes is the exclusive home of the Tour de France fantasy cycling game in the United States and Canada. Upcoming live events include Torino Adriatico, the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, and so much more. Don't miss out on the craziest fall of cycling ever. When you purchase a Flowbike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Don't miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash velonews. Velo News has been the American voice of competitive cycling since 1972, and they just launched an all-new premium membership program called Velo News Pass. Members of Velo News Pass get access to premium content on Velo News, discounts from partners like Scratch Labs and Giordana, plus your choice of any of the magazines produced by their parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, which include Velo News, Triathlete, Ski, Backpacker, Climbing, Yoga Journal, and more. Loyal listeners of Fizzo get 15% off Velo News Pass with the code FIZZO15. Has to be lowercase. That is P-Y-S-O-15, all lowercase. Become a member at velonews.com slash activepass and enter the code FIZZO15, all lowercase, during checkout. That's velonews.com slash activepass and coupon code FIZZO15 to join. It's tour time, and with every person and their dog doing a podcast about the race, covering the same stuff in the same way, Bobby and I weren't interested in doing another boring race recap. Instead, we wanted to take a different approach to covering the tour, one that is inextricably linked to the Tour de France, but not in the typical way. And so we introduce In the Shade of La Tour, a Fizzo podcast special. Over the coming weeks, we step out of the sunshine and into the shade of the tour with three different perspectives on the tour from those not at the tour. Hello and welcome to the Tour de France podcast special. My name is Angus Morton, and as always, I am joined by Bobby Julik. Mate, how are you doing? Doing great, Gus. Uh, just so darn happy to have the Tour de France on TV and the internet to fill up our mornings. I must admit, it's been a little bit of an adjustment these first couple days, figuring out, wait a second, you know, I need to allot four to five hours of my day to kind of somewhat pay attention, if not be glued to to these outlets. So kind of with kids and with dogs and with drop-offs for soccer practice and volleyball, it's uh, been a bit of a challenge, but I'm starting to find my groove a little bit, you know, um, just so happy to be watching the tour on TV again, that's for sure. What's new in your world? Mate, the Tour de France is, is probably the, uh, the newest thing in my world and very excited that the tour is back on to see some, uh, some of the top-level bike racing and, uh, and I'm, I'm the same as you. You know, have to get up relatively early to watch the race out here in, in Colorado. And uh, the first couple of days, I just totally forgot. And so I'm sort of, as you just said, getting in the groove now. Uh, another fantastic stage this morning. I think it's going to be a fantastic Tour de France and, and, and different Tour de France on a number of fronts. So, yeah, I'm excited to, uh, to be in the thick of it. You know, it's been Blur's Day for about five months for all of us, that's for sure. But like now having the tour on TV and it being highs of 90 degrees, 95 degrees still here in, in Greenville, South Carolina, I'm just thinking like that it is July and it's, it's, we're getting into September now. It's, it's nuts. Like this is, this is all just so weird and so blurry, but I'm just going to enjoy watching the days and, and, and hope that the Tour de France, you know, is able to finish in Paris. I mean, like you said, we've moved away from doing that daily race recap um, as we pivoted away from that at the beginning of this year. 
And our goal is to talk to interesting people about interesting things that our listeners could take something away from, learn something. And obviously, we're all glued to watching the tour. But rather than those race results and just the regurgitation of the same thing, yeah, I, I, I really think that what we're going to do is, is going to be great. Um, given the fact that we are still tethered to the world of cycling, and especially now with the Tour de France, it was just great to see the Tour de France get started. Obviously, it wasn't the best of starts with, with poor weather and a lot of crashes on the first day. And I mean, everyone says the same thing. You don't want to start the tour with a crash because it already you're, you're affecting your immune system by having to repair you know, wounds and you lose sleep and that puts stress on the body. There's enough stress going on outside of the bubble and then inside of the race that anything like this could be an issue. But luckily, stage two was fantastic. Philippe doing what he did on the Cote d'Azur. I must say that was a little bit difficult for me to watch because all those helicopter shots, I, I knew every twist and turn, um, memories popping up from the 17 years that I lived there and trained there with, with certain people that I would ride with. I never knew all the names of the climbs. But there was always a nickname for for all the climbs, like you know, this is this is Frankie's SFR SFR hill, and and this is Kevin's hill, and this is David's climb, and uh, it, it was just funny seeing all that stuff, you know, on on the big screen. And then you know, stage three being a sprint finish, I mean, there's not going to be too many of those this year. Uh, Caleb coming through with an amazing amazing victory, and yeah, both Caleb and Alaphilippe are obviously proving that last year was no fluke. They had a lot of pressure on them. They had great success in the tour last year, and boom, they're you know before the, before the middle of the first week, they've already got a stage win, and you know Allah's got the got the yellow jersey. And today, and obviously when this podcast comes out, it'll be a little bit late. But so not to go too deep into the woods, but Jumba Visma looks amazing. I mean, Sepkus, Walt Van Aert. Obviously, Primoz, Rolish, the way that they performed today was phenomenal. But the real takeaway for me, because it is a long race, you know, there's a long way to go. There's a lot that can happen. But man, oh man, Ineos is totally on the back foot. It's like I'm watching a totally different team. So, um, you know, moving into this second part of the first week, into the first rest day when we have our next podcast, uh, just hoping that everything kind of keeps going in this direction because we're getting into a groove and it's becoming part of our day and the racing is great and the anticipation of what's going to happen is 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 crazy because we've never seen a tour like this before so yeah i'm uh super excited but at the same time i got a question what the fallout's going to be for a guy like Dave Brailsford and, and Ineos, if this continues to happen i mean it's so strange to see the whole team suffering of course, we have no idea. A lot of guys crashed on that first day, and there's a lot of guys that you know we don't have updates on their conditions. But uh, like I said, it's a long race, and they can right the ship, but that ship is looking a little shoddy at the moment. Yeah, it is. I would agree. I think that's been one of the standouts um, for me uh, outside of probably um, uh, Wout Van Aert's ride today on the final climb um, was just, just how different Team Ineos look. And, and as you said, what, what will be the fallout? I mean, we know this team is run with a very tight corporate structure, and uh, and typically when you know teams don't don't perform in uh, in their their annual goal, then they are typically given a bit of a reshuffle. So anyway, I think uh, we may be seeing. Well, who knows? It's early in it's early in the tour, but what we will what we do know is we're going to be seeing an interesting race and and another fantastic edition of the Tour de France. And that brings us to this week's guest. With more stage wins than any other athlete currently racing and second only to the great Eddie Merckx in all of the Tour de France's history, Mark Cavendish has had a career nothing short of remarkable. With critics often writing him off almost since he began winning, Cav has never been far from the front of the race or the front of the news. With undoubtedly his toughest few years behind him, Mark took himself out of contention for selection in the delayed 2020 Tour de France. On a single-year deal with Bahrain McLaren, we sat down with Mark to get his thoughts on the sport, the Tour de France, the struggles he's faced both on and off the bike in the last few years, and what he still loves about racing. 
Now, I do want to put a warning out there that today's episode does discuss depression and other related mental health issues at depth. If you are suffering from depression or having suicidal thoughts or anything like that, please reach out to the National Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. In the world of cycling, when you are recognized by only your first name, you must be pretty darn good. But if you're known by a nickname, you must be a legend. Mark Cavendish, or Cav as we all know him, has won over 145 races during his professional career and an amazing 30 stage wins in the Tour de France, 15 stage wins in the Giro, three stage wins at the Tour of Spain. That's a total of 48 Grand Tour stage wins and was world champion in 2011. He had many monikers over the years, but Cav has been a longtime personal favorite of mine, and I am so stoked to have him on the show today. Cav, welcome to Put Your Socks On. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Cav, you know, we, we've worked together and you've always been one of my, my favorite guys out there, and it's more your fighting spirit, your attitude, you know, the way that you're so professional with, with everything that you do. And... Just break it down for us a little bit. We had Rod Ellingworth on the podcast last week, and we kind of decided, Gus and I, that for this podcast, we don't want to just talk about the race and talk about the results and talk about the drama. We kind of wanted to talk about something different. And, you know, you, you are a very different sprinter. There's a lot of guys that you've competed with for, for years that are just these Goliaths. And you've always been, let's say, a little bit smaller than the rest of the guys, but you packed one hell of a punch. How did you break in to the world of mass field sprinting with, with that, that size disadvantage? Or was it or is it an advantage? I don't know, you know, Bob, thanks for the intro anyway. But uh, I don't know. I think the, f- the first thing, the major thing I put it down to is really like in terms of physiology and that's probably my track racing background, you know, like having a leg speed. Um, that was probably the biggest thing physio- physiologically because I'm not, I don't put out a massive peak power relative to, to the others. Um, but I can sustain a pretty high power for a longer period. Whereas the guys will peak at 2000 watts, say the big guys like Greipel and that are much more attainable by a normal cyclist. Like it's rarely I'll, I'll get over 1400 watts, you know, but, for the 15 seconds, I can average over 1,200 for the 15 seconds, whereas the likes of Griper would go 2,000 and then quickly drop down to 1,900, you know? I think it would, that, that physiological thing came from the track for sure. I think much more than physiologically, it was a lot more of a tactical, technical, mental type of thing, you know? Like, since I ever, ever since I was a kid... I had to win at everything I did, you know, not just cycling. Like, oh, I didn't cycle when I was a kid, but if it was at school, if it was playing Monopoly, I had to win everything. I had to, you know, and uh, and that kind of was instilled into into my cycling. But it kind of it was more of a process rather than than just you know you know you have this romantic idea, don't you, of uh, of sprinters? It's all adrenaline and you're knocking elbows, and I didn't really have that really you know for sure it comes pouring out after the line but that's because I didn't really have it in the race I guess you know it was more of going through a process and uh, and calculating what was happening as it was happening me being a guy that probably in my peak form could hit maybe 1100 watts and that would probably be for like one pedal stroke um, I don't have that same experience in in those sprint finishes but when you get into a sprint do you see things in a different way? Does it open up? Is it like a flow? Or are you fully calculated and, you know, with every single movement that, that you make? Because sometimes it's just like a gap opens and there's no way in heck I would think of going through that gap. And, and the sprinters just seem to just flow around and not see the same fear that people like me see. Is that something that can be learned? Or is that just from birth you have that sort of ability to see that? Uh, that flow of, of a sprint like that? To be honest, it changes when you're older. It's changed for me a little bit now, you know. I, when I was younger, it was always like like fear weren't really, any emotion wasn't really there. I always thought of emotion as being kind of a waste of energy. I didn't really know it was like that. But when I got older, I could kind of analyze it. 
I've seen it a bit more like that, you know, where it doesn't have to be a fear or, or anger. It can be like joy or, or any any emotion, good or bad, was kind of taken away from, from the process of, of doing it, you know. And uh, I guess it was just like I knew, yeah, instead of seeing other riders there, I just saw the gaps. Um, there are guys like that, you know. Um, it's hard to really analyse because sprint has changed a lot now as well, you know. There was a lot less... Um, I'm I'm kind of differing a bit here, but Tour de France sprints are completely different anyway, because like the majority of the pelotons there for GC and GC goals anyway. They're actually, there's a lot less guys in the Tour de France sprint in the final. Okay, up to three kilometers to go is a lot more, but in the last three kilometers, it's actually a fair few less guys than than there is in other races because if you haven't got the team. Most of the races, they go with full sprint teams now. And in Tour de France, they don't. In the past, they kind of used to. But it was still, if you were sprinting, you were up there. If you weren't sprinting, you, you weren't up there. So it's kind of, everything was always moving forward. Whereas now, like, there's a lot of stuff coming backwards. There's a lot of individual lead-out people who are doing a job where they might blow with a kilometre goal and they're coming backwards. So there's a lot of the race coming backwards rather than everything moving forwards. And it kind of changed your perspective on how to see gaps and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? I, I can see what you're saying. And that's actually something I had never really thought about. You assume Tour de France and you assume everybody's there, all their best guys, all the best people. Um, but what you just I don't said get me wrong. makes sense. Don't get no, me wrong, I, but sorry to interrupt you. Like, the difference is, I didn't mean to say this, the difference is with the Tour de France. Although there's less kind of people there, everyone's in a peak form. And everyone's got the consequences of winning and losing a lot better. So it is faster and higher pace and more more going on. But there's there's actually like quite a lot less inconsequential stuff going on that you have to think about. If that makes sense. So, right. Yeah. And and no no. And I, I sorry. I obviously exactly everyone's at their peak form and and all of the best sprinters and and everyone is there. But as you said, the teams have to be diversified. And and just before. Um, the podcast came on, you said something really interesting, which the UCI points for 20th place uh, are worth more than a stage win, right? Um, in the general classification. Yeah. So so the teams have to, you know, the teams, have, everyone's thinking about their position um, as a team in the World Tour and all these sort of things. So the, the racing has definitely changed. I'm just interested to know, knowing that, you know, the dynamic for the Tour de France is unlike any other race, do you approach it differently um, as a sprinter or and, and have you had to do that more as the years have gone by or is it always still the same preparation and the same sort of thinking for you? No, absolutely. I always uh, approach the Tour de France different. The Tour de France is my life. The Tour de France, I owe the Tour de France everything for my career. I've won a lot of races, but I could have won everything and if I didn't win at the Tour de France, it, 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 it wouldn't have counted for shit, to be fair. Um, I owe the Tour de France everything that, you know, I can I can be satisfied with my career for, and uh, that's because I always I always target when I was when I was young. I dreamt of winning the Tour de France, and uh, I've been fortunate that you know I could win at the Tour. Like one Tour de France stage makes a rider's career, you know, and so I would have been happy with one Tour de France stage, you know. And I'm fortunate to have obviously won thirty, but uh, that was because I put my whole season around it. Like it's things have changed in the last years for me in the fact that. Basically, I think it changed when I went to uh, to Dimension Data, you know. Um, so in the years, all my years of my career, I sometimes won a lot of races throughout the year. I sometimes won absolutely nothing. Like 2010, I think I won one race, maybe two, before the Tour de France. And you know what I've done? I, I, I've kept articles that were written then writing me off, saying my career's finished in 2010. I hadn't won before the Tour. And uh, it's it's actually incredible, you know, like, like not really mainstream journalists, but cycling journalists, you know, the ones that think they know everything about cycling. Like it just shows how seriously they take themselves. I think how much they think they know about it, but how little they actually do, you know, and I've kept this and it will, it will embarrass a few people. I think, you know, and um, I was written off in 2010 and I've won since 2010, I've won 15 stages of the Tour de France, <laughs> you know, I'm being world champion <laughs> and, and, uh, and it, it, it's happened since that. But anyway, my point I was putting is that I was lucky. Like, ironically, the bigger the teams I was in were always the ones that backed me for the tour, even when I didn't win before. Unfortunately, like, if you get sick or if you get easily kind of written off, it was a mindset that I was at that I'd go to a win. 
and I did everything for it. And if you have to sacrifice things before that to, to be in good condition for the tour, you have to. But Tour de France is, is, is bigger than cycling, isn't it? You know, it's 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 not a cycling event; it's a sporting event. And uh, I always showed it the the respect it deserved. And uh, and for that, um, I think that's where where I got the respect back from it. I guess from the race. One thing that really pops out to me about you know the record of Tour de France stage wins and you being so close to that Eddie Merckx record of 34 is that the sport, you came into the sport, when was your first Tour de France, 2008? Seven. No, when I was a Neo Pro was my first Tour de France, but I was way out of my depth, Bobby. Like, honestly, like, it started in London, didn't it? So I, I, I turned pro for, for T-Mobile, and uh, I started winning straight away. And uh, Oh, I remember, I remember you Price, winning so. straight away, that's for sure. I'm mate, uh, <laughs> you, you came up to me the story, do you know this, Gus, that... Uh, like I still remember, and I still tell this story, Bobby, that, uh, and it shows you, like, even that year, some of my own teammates didn't talk to me, you know? I was this little fat British kid that come into, you know, the turn pro, and like, I didn't look like a cyclist. I still don't look like a cyclist, you know? Um, but I won races as an amateur, and uh, it's kind of changed now. something we can go on to later about in the old days, <laughs> in the old days. But <laughs> you, used to get, you used to get contracts by winning races, don't you? Didn't you? Nowadays, it doesn't matter if you win as an amateur. If you've got high power numbers, you get the contract. Even if you, it's as simple as that. You might do something stupid in a race. They go, yeah, he's stupid, but you see the power output, you put, let's give him a contract. You know, and uh, I was that guy that I had shit numbers. I didn't look like a pro, I didn't, but I won races. And uh, some guys didn't talk to me in the team. And then Bobby come up to me and he's like, Bobby Julek, <laughs> you know, and he come up and he's like, Cav or Mark, I can't remember. And he's like, oh, can I just say, like, I'm really impressed. I'm a real fan of what you've done this year. I was like, what? I was like, wow, you know, like, Bobby Julius come up and said that. It was, it was, it just shows how, that's pretty special from you, man. Like, I always remember, I always tell that story, like, you know. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, towards the end of my career. And, you know, you were somebody special and we all saw it. And I, I definitely took, I fanboyed out a little bit, I must say. You know, you were you were this young kid, and I was towards the end of my career, and I just wanted to meet you because I didn't know how much longer than that my career would go. And you know, luckily we were able to work together at Team Sky, and here you are on my podcast. Yeah. But you know that that was that was a long time ago for sure. You know, a long time ago since you know you busted down the door of of the world of cycling. But you were twenty one, twenty twenty one back then. And, yeah. and, and now, and yeah. now you're 35. And for me, going back to that Eddie Merckx record, it's, it's just amazing that those two are kind of on the same plane because like the sport is so, was so different when Eddie Merckx was around compared to when you're, you're around. You have what, 30 stage wins in, yeah. in the Tour de France. And what, do you know who second place is as far as stage wins in the Tour de France in, in our era? In your era, um, in our era, Sagan with twelve. <laughs> twelve, so 12, it goes yeah. from thirty down to twelve, and you know the sport being so different. And the the thing I remember so much is that you would rattle off multiple stage wins in in one Grand Tour. You know, I never won a stage of the Grand Tour, um, never uh, individual stage of a Grand Tour. Uh, let alone the the Tour de France, and there you were. One year, I think you won seven stages. You know that's that's just phenomenal. But it seems to me like the sport back then was much more catered around those sprint finishes, and now it's less and less. And if we look at the Tour this year, I don't know. Today was per one of the very few obvious sprint finishes. But why do you think that is? Where twenty years ago there would be you would be able to win seven stages maybe out of 10 sprint finishes. And now they're so few and far between. Is, is, is the era of the sprinter kind of over or is it just maybe in, in like hit pause for now? If you want me to be brutally honest, I think it's social media. That, that's it. Like, like organizers listen to fans or so-called fans, you know, um, and the way they do that is through social media or, or stuff like that, you know. And, uh, and even down to like, yeah, like like cycling media, maybe a fan writing something 
like they're writing it from a fan's perspective rather than a journalistic perspective and say something's boring. Like anybody who says a bunch sprint is boring is not intelligent enough to understand what's going on in a bunch sprint. That's, that's my honest opinion. For me, bunch sprinting is the only part of cycling left that uses pure tactics. You know, even, even a mountain, mountain stage is literally a time trial where everyone starts to get, it's a physical thing. You can do it or you can't. It's as simple as that. You know, you know what power you can put out and you do that. And whoever can hold the highest threshold wins. And uh, sprinting is a lot more dynamic than that. Maybe the stage, not much happens in the stage earlier, but uh, that's because they know it's going to be a bunch sprint. Like, ride it. It's not horse races. Like, horses, like racing horses that just go out and, and or, or racing dogs that go out and chase that rabbit running around. If you know it's going to be a sprint, it doesn't matter how, the, how fast the race goes because it's going to be the same outcome. So everyone kind of takes it as a rest day. I'm fortunate now to, um, to have raced in a generation and era without doping. And with that comes the fact that with 21 days, sometimes you have to go easy, you know? And, uh, and so it would be stupid to go fast when there's no need to go fast when it's the same outcome because everyone can benefit from, from, from the rest. But unfortunately now, it has got to that again where they go fast when there's no need to go fast. Because like I said, the guys that didn't, don't really understand what cycling is or racing or race tactics would just have big power numbers, you know? If they're riding on the front, there's big engines in cycling now, big, big engines. And they'll get on the front, they'll pull their cock out and whap it round, like, you know? And, uh, and it's just a dick swing contest. Like, who can put out the highest numbers? And it's just like, it's going to be the same outcome. It's just everyone's a bit more fucked by the end of the race, you know? And so, like, so sprints kind of got this, like, by someone who didn't really understand what a sprint is or understand what cycling is would say, oh, it's boring. And then so they tried to eradicate any quotation marks boring stages, I guess. I can definitely, we can definitely say that the, um, that the, uh, the Tour de France organizers and, and, the, and the cycling zeitgeist obviously don't listen to our podcast because um, last year I, Bobby and I were talking about what our ideal Tour de France's would be and mine was 21 sprint stages um, <laughs> because everything, everything right now seems to be, it was, I was in, it was during the Vuelta actually and it was just mountain day after mountain day and you know, it's, it's brutal to watch but, and, and we were like, well, let's give, let's make a tour for the sprinters. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling you there, Cav. I do want to know like, so, <laughs> and so if, if the, uh, if the cycling zeitgeist is listening, maybe post it on, on social media and we'll get what we want. But so you sort of saying the racing has, has kind of gone out of it a little bit. Again, Bobby and I have discussed this quite a bit over, over the sort of year and a bit that we've been doing this. And it does feel like at times it's, it's just whoever can push the numbers. Do you feel that racing has gone out of bike racing? A little bit, yeah. But uh, it is what it is, you know. Even if the race, even if what like I loved about racing has gone, at the end of the day, I'm still fortunate to get to race, you know. So I can't kind of resent it or feel bitter about it because I, get, I still get to do it, you know. Um, so yeah, I do feel it like that. That kind of romanticism of what cycling was—it's—it's it's gone a bit, you know. And uh, and uh, and I think on the other end of the kind of, if you if you turn the tables a bit, why it's got like that? There's actually a positive behind it, in that our sports grown, you know, not just the racing side, just people riding bikes, like whether people are commuting, whether. There's families going out enjoying it, people doing it to get fit, or people doing it to uh, to race. Like there's a latitude predominantly, the people getting fit and people doing it to race. The fact that they can compare themselves to the pros now, like that's a big part of why they've they've done it. It's a big part of why they, they stay doing it, you know? So you have to appreciate and I have to appreciate that if cycling's going like if if there's just stronger guys in who don't race, but it gets more people riding bikes, it's it, it's something that uh, you know I have to be happy about at the end of the day. You know, someone can go look at the power they're doing rather than going yeah like like you if you're out with your mates is you, you you know when when you're a kid and you used to go out and pretend to be a rider, you know like you'd have in your head a rider. Mine was always you you on Museo, you know, 
I'd go on a bumpy bit of a road and pretend they were cobblestones and think, oh, yeah, I'm Isaiah. But now, like, people can actually compare themselves to what, to what those guys are doing, you know, which is, it's, it, it's the other end, it's the positive side of, of, of them changing the cycle, I guess. So, so Cav, b- being in the sport as long as you have and starting at such a young age, I'd be curious to hear who was your hero back in the day? Who was that guy that you just loved to watch or maybe even still love to watch? I can say that Yarn Museo was that one guy that I pretended to be going out. You know, I think uh, obviously I, I grew up in, in the Lance era watching Lance. That was really the time that I got into cycling. But I remember when I was like 13, like I'm, at, at 13, I kind of, without sounding big headed, I knew I was good. You know, I knew I was like cycling was what I could do. You know, um, I seen like US Postal just went with a GC Ambition and uh, I seen Telecom, they went with GC Ambition, but also they went for the sprints with Zarbel. And I was like, that's the great team I'm going to ride for. So when I was 13, I was doing the options for my uh, for my exams at school, you know, where you take the last, and I, I, I opted to learn German. I said, can I learn German? Because uh, I want to ride for this team <laughs> when I grow up. Yeah, so I, so I just started learning German at school and then, yeah, fortunately, I turned pro for Team Mobile like five, six years later. So, well, for the record, my uh, the the guy that I went out riding and tried to emulate when I was about the same age was Jan Ulrich. I used, oh, yeah. to, I used to set my my uh, setback, which this is ridiculous in terms of no, now knowing what I do about about like the technicality of the sport. But I used to set my saddle ten centimeters behind the bottom bracket. Because that's what someone told me that that's what someone told me Ulrich did. So I used to ride this insane position, like physiologically not at all like Ulrich, but but I used to just ride around like ten centimeters behind the bracket because that's what he did. Did. You, did you did you bandage up your calf or anything? You know, Ulrich had this like one of his calves was smaller than the other. Do you know that? Right. No, I don't remember. Know that. Like, I remember the first time like I raced with him. I was racing for an amateur team in Germany and Nuremberg Alstadt. Yeah. And oh my God, I was starting to race with Ulrich. And I remember riding behind him and he, he's had one car smaller than the other, yeah. Like we had not, I don't think many people kind of that's talked about. There's got to be something there in that, you know. Who was there? Who was Lockie? Went, did you, did you know Lockie went out riding together? Who was he? Did you just pretend to be two different people and race together and that? That's a good question. Lockie and I both were mad Jan Ulrich fans. Um, yeah. And so I think we both just just wanted to be him. And then you know, Lockie certainly had the motor uh, more in line with 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 uh, with Ulrich's talent than, than I did. But yeah, that's what we, we we would just go out and we'd always talk about it. Like I had the T the Team Telecom Pinarello frame that I worked at a bike shop. Yeah. When I was like 11, 12, 13 for like two or three years to pay my dad off for this frame. <laughs> um, but it's funny. It is funny. Like like I had like what you're just saying right now. I sort of like had that same vision right um to try and you know like that was the team i wanted to ride for so yeah it's, yeah. Funny, it's funny to hear that funny to hear that coming from you oh yeah man oh, we could have been teammates there eh? exactly been good, could have been what could have been what could have been <laughs> it was a cracking team that was actually i loved it so yeah on on that subject then cab i mean you've been on a lot of teams what what are same what are some of your favorite memories and i don't know what would be who would be like your your favorite teammate, your favorite team, um, just well, I, I, I'm 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 so fortunate to have ridden for some of the the best teams, the most historical teams in our era of cycling. Like, I'm so fortunate for that, um, and to actually ride with like incredible people. And I'm proud that I've made friends. You know, have like okay, there has been a lot of just teammates, and you move on from them. But I'm I've made so many friendships, and. Uh, and there's a few of us there's a long time with Bernie Eisel, a long time with Mark Renshaw. And Bernie, I spent I spent more time in my life with Bernie Eisel than I have with my wife, you know. He's the person that he knows everything about me. I know everything about him. You know, we were roommates, he like it, it was like a, a brotherly brotherly love, you know. Um in terms of like I think you'll agree, Bobby, like the most incredible person I've ever ridden in my career is George, without a doubt. There's not, I can't, I can't imagine there's anybody that dislikes George. And if they do, they've got a problem. Like he's the most likable man, not just cyclist, the most likable man I've ever met. And for the best teammate 
the most loyal man. Like he's he's incredible. Like you know, and uh, I'm proud that that he's still my friend. Like you know, so. gentleman George, gentleman George, almost uh, to a fault. He was so darn nice to everybody that it was you know he he would just talk to everybody all the time and make everyone feel at home. But talking about a guy like George who provided a a leadership role, um, some tutelage. Uh, you looked up to him. And, you know, you're you're in a phase of your career right now where you're taking on a role like that. We spoke before we got on the podcast um, about, you know, that transition from being, you know, what, you know, winning 30 stages of the tour until now. And you said something very, very interesting that you actually enjoy helping your teammates win the same as if, you were winning. And for me, that struck me because like, I always thought that these sprinter types, you know, it was, it was me, 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 me. But what has changed uh, where you, you, you've, you have this philosophy and you're, you're willing to, to pass the torch and to help these younger riders? Because um, I find that is a very, very admirable trait in people. Bobby, nothing's changed. I was always like that from, from when I was an amateur. It didn't matter if I was crossing the line first or my teammate was crossing the line first. It, it didn't matter. Like I understood from a very young age, well, not a very, very young age as a cyclist, you know, that it was teamwork. And I love being part of a team, you know. I'm from a small island, the Isle of Man, and it's a very communi- community feel there, you know. Everyone looks out for each other. Um, everyone knows each other for good and bad. But, uh, you know, you look out for each other and... Uh, and that's why, like, I, I always loved team sports at school. And that's what I particularly loved about cycling. Not just when you're on the bike, when you're off the bike. You know, you, it's your family, isn't it? And uh, it just so happened that I could guarantee a win more than individuals on a team. For me, a team isn't... I wasn't a leader of a team with eight guys riding for me. I was just the last part... You, you get nine guys, okay, and now it's eight at the top, but the time was nine. You get nine guys, and you have to fit them together in a certain order that is going to cross the line first. It's as simple as that. If you build a kit car, you know, you have to put the car together in a certain way so that when you turn the ignition, it starts. If you put it together in a different order, it's not going to start. It's not It's not a car. And it's the same with the... With the you know, if I put on a bike, I, you know, you know, I'm not going to put the brake levers on the on the chainstay because I can't use the brakes. Then the bike doesn't work. And uh, this is the same in a cycling team. You put the guys together in the most efficient way. It's going to cross the line first. And it just so happened that in the sprint days, I'd normally be the last guy, so I'd cross the line first. But I was never ever self-absorbed enough to think that it was me that had done it. I understood always it was the team that had done it. For me, Cav, that was one of the most amazing things. When you would win a stage, it seemed like you were so happy and you would always grab your teammates and 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 thank them for 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 their efforts. And you know, you executed the final stage of the plan that you guys set before the race. But as a sprinter and winning being the only thing that matters, that has to be a heck of a lot of pressure. How did you deal with that sort of pressure over the years? And did you even feel it? Honestly, Bobby, not really. I didn't know any different, you know. Uh, I was world champion when I was 19. And so after that, I was expected to win as an amateur. And I turned pro and I was winning straight away. Um, And so I was expected to win there from turning pro. And fortunately, I did win from straight away. So quite quickly, like it became news if I didn't win rather than news if I did win. But that was normal. I didn't know any different. So I didn't, I thought that was what everyone felt because I didn't know any different. And uh, it wasn't until Dimension Data again that that it kind of changed, you know, where like I got sick, I got Epstein-Barr virus. I had a massive year in 16 where I was world champion on the track. I was second in the world championships on the road and I was going for the double. Like even Eddie didn't win the world title on the road and track in the same year. And to be that close, like that was, that was my biggest day. I mean, more than the Olympics in the yellow jersey, but to wear the yellow jersey, win four stages and tour that year, second in the Olympics, you know, and to swap between the track and the road is a big thing. It took its toll the year after and I got to stand bar virus. 
and uh, it was something that it wasn't managed well by by my team. Like they just expected me to come back and race, and I was sick, and that's when it started to I started to suffer with that. You know, being expected to perform when you physically can't, um, that took its toll. And like, I really struggled with mental health issues there. Like, I, I, I've got depression. I've suffered depression. I still suffer with depression now. In a way, I could say it's kind of karma because I was one of the people. Maybe four years ago, you talked about depression. I was one of those people that go, "What's I be depressed about? Like, snap out of it. How can anybody like? It's just an excuse, you know." And uh, it's not till I've added it that I realize like it's fucking real, man, you know, and it's something that's so uh, misunderstood, you know, and depression doesn't mean you're depressed about something, you know, it's, it, it's a sickness, you know, and uh, I still struggle now. Like it, it, it affected my family life. It's definitely affected my career. And uh, I can see that it's quite prevalent in, in professional sports, especially in cycling, you know, and, uh, and that was something, and that came from, yes, yeah, some not being able to just being like being expected to do something that you know you can't do, and it's out of your control. The reason why you can do it, you know, and uh, that's that, that took its toll massively. To be fair, and I mean, from speaking, I guess, uh, from my own experience, right, um, I can hundred percent understand where you're coming from. Like as a kid, as a young guy, like I was the same, right. Um, yeah. in that sense of being like what's there to be depressed about like you just just get over it right um, yeah. and and to be honest like you know I was I raced until I was 21 stopped and then came back again raced with Lockie um, obviously Lockie raced with you and when I stopped the second time around I was 28 and I didn't realise right that that's what was going on and that I was depressed essentially and um, yeah and nobody told me about it. No one told me that that's what, what happens or what can happen. Um, yeah. And it made me, it's, it, it kind of, it was like, it made me really mad at the sport, I think. I guess not the sport itself, but I kind of like, that no one spoke about it. Yeah. I and, and that no one else, and I guess like, as you just mentioned, right, like a lot of people suffer from it. And as soon as you start, I guess, going through that process yourself, you start recognizing that in others. You start having yeah. conversations with people, and and it's a it's a very real thing, um, is is what I'm is what I'm trying to say, I think, and 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 I'm interested to know, I guess, from your perspective, like, you know, you're still in the sport, you're very much um, a hero of the sport, and I'm and I'm interested to know, like, how you're moving forward through this this sort of thing, and 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 how you're managing to to keep, you know, driving, being at the top level of the sport, um, but also dealing with this with this thing. Um. Listen, like, I'm sorry to hear that you've dealt with it. You've been through it, man. Like, uh, I appreciate that. No. Yeah. Um, it's just, I think, I don't know. I don't know how you find it, but I feel being surrounded with good people is, mm. is, is the best thing. I know it's like, it's a trait that, that I feel the best thing for me is to have people around. But the irony being that when you have episodes or when you're at your worst the last thing you want is people around isn't it exactly and yeah, like exactly you, you crave for people but you don't want to be with people it, it, it's strange isn't it so it, it's kind mm. of a vicious cycle but uh like i've had a massive stroke of luck that i can be working with people who i've known a long time who i love who who know me for me and not for mark hamster that's like rod ellingworth roger hammond like guys that I'm working with now in this in this team, um, and uh, even guys that actually I never thought I'd be friends with. Like Heinrich Hausler is a guy that we hated each other for the most best part of our career. We hated each other, yeah. And he's he's my best friend in the team now, and because he's just he's just a bike racer, and his love of cycling. And his love of having a group, good group of people around and it being not just a job, but you're a family and you, like, it's infectious. And I, I, I have a, we have a, a core group in our sprint team with him, with Phil Bauhaus, Marcel Zieberg. And uh, at one point we were all rivals and we're so close. And I feel like I'm, I'm in a family again. I love Rama. Right? If I had stopped cycling last year, 
I was bitter about the sport. I didn't like it. I wouldn't have touched my bike again. If I stopped tomorrow, I'd ride my bike every day. I love it again. Like love it. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm actually so happy that I carried on. Like I, there, there, there was, there's obviously points that, uh, I want to stop, but the, the biggest person through it all was my wife. You know, she's been like, I made her life a fucking hell, you know? And she's a strong, strongest person I know. And she got me through and she's the one that kept me believing that things would be okay. You know, there was other people as well. There's, there's, there's too many people to name who, who helped me, you know, and like, I'm thankful for everyone. Um, but she was the, without her, I, not even, I don't know if I'd be cycling. I don't know if I'd be it, to be fair. And it, it, it makes me sick that the very people that were kicking me are still doing it to, to riders in the peloton, you know, it makes me sick. Um, and it, another thing as well is that like, like, do you know what is really bad? Do you know, the, you know, it, it, you kind of think irrationally, don't you? Like you, uh, everything you do goes against everything that you'd, you'd probably even believe. For instance, right. I would never read cycling media. I'd never read uh, social media because it was poisonous. And probably when you're down, it's the worst time you should do it, but it's actually when you do it. Where, exactly. The time that you shouldn't do it most is the, is the time that you pay most attention to it. And uh, the cycling media was very, very bad in doing that, in, in writing stuff for their own clicks. Like just, just like, like trying to get clicks and comments on things and that, and like really making stuff that wasn't stuff and even fictitious stuff at times. That was ironically the one time I shouldn't have been looking at that was the one time that you do what you do, you're irrational. And, and that became quite bad for me. You know, for me, they can be the biggest culprits of causing mental health problems in, in their own sport, actual journalists of this sport. Um, can be the worst at, at, at that for, for causing riders riders problems, you know. Writing with it with the tabloid s kind of kind of theme to it, like it, it's very very fucking dangerous. Yeah, it is, and I think, I mean, and 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 obviously, for well, first, like I appreciate you talking about this, right? This is, I mean, I don't think I've ever necessarily spoken publicly about this, right? Um, but as someone who didn't get to the Tour de France to those levels that I had hoped to get to, right? you just um, fade away from the sport and and you leave and you think that you're left kind of thinking and, and Bobby and I were talking about this earlier, right? You're kind of left thinking, oh, is there something wrong with me because yeah. I can't get light enough or I can't, you know, um, fit in with this team dynamic. I'm like, I can't focus in the way that I'm meant to or something. And you're, you're always made to feel like it's it's you who don't fit in with, with the system and, and as a result, it's like, it's sort of like, oh, the system's for everyone and you don't fit. So obviously it's something wrong with you, not necessarily the other way around. Yeah. Um, and so you don't, yeah, I guess you don't, um, you don't speak about it when, you know, the guy next to you and the other guy next to that riding in the pelotons in the same, the same position, right? So yeah. here, he, I think it's, it's important, this, this conversation that, that we're having now is, is important to have because there are a lot of guys who don't make it, who aren't, you know, who go through this, but who, who aren't able to, who aren't able to articulate it right um and i think that knowing that this is something that exists amongst a wide you know amongst from the very top down right um for everyone i think that that will hopefully this conversation will allow a lot of people to have conversations about about this and so i think it's yeah i mean i think it's in, it's important and it's brave right like you know this this stuff isn't isn't necessarily easy to to talk about or articulate well i think as well in a, in and in a in a, in a kind of a sport where it's it's kind of the the punchline the romantic punchline is like hard on the fuck up and that it's it can be seen as a weakness can't it and you can feel that it can be sensed as a weakness and i have to be truthful that i probably used it against people when 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 i clearly see now that that um that they had that they had problems you know and and like, like I said, and I thought it was, uh, it was just an excuse. I'd use it against people really, do you know? And yeah, we're kind of in this catch 22. That's a sport that's supposed to be uh, tough or not, but it's, it's, it's not that simple, is it really? You know? Not exactly. at all. Not at all. And I mean, Mark, thank you so much, um, for sharing, you know, this very private issue. 
um, with us and our listeners. And I always feel that when you're weak, you need to ask for help. When you're strong, you need to offer it. And just yeah. what in in the, the world of professional cycling, that's the only world of professional sports that I'll know. So I'll I'll speak for. I bet the the impact that you will have with with so many other people. I would I would say a very very high percentage of people struggle with this. We just don't know what it is because when you're when you're involved in it you just think oh it's it's my bike oh it's my shoes it's my position um it's my nutrition but something like this is 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 a major thing that i think affect a lot more people and i just want to thank you um from the bottom of my heart for sharing this personal story on on our podcast because i know it's going to help other people uh a few months ago we, we did a podcast um, about heart health and the responses that we got from that podcast were enormous and people saying, man, thank you for mentioning that. I, I didn't know what it was. I've gone to the doctor. I've gotten help. And, and I know that that's going to be the same situation here. So, you know, I, I know that you've won a lot of bike races in your year, in, in your years, but something like this goes to just a totally different level. Of, of being but a human. It, and it really helps in, in this situation. It really helps speaking with people who understand, you know, so I thank, thank you guys, especially thank you Gus for speaking about your problems as well. And like, it helps it. it isn't it like a weight's lifted when somebody understands? Like, it's, yeah, it's, dude. Yeah. I'm like, I'm sweating sitting here. It does feel good. Yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> That's another thing, you know, with, 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 the sport with technology, with data everywhere, bikes, wheels, nutrition, recovery. As a, a senior ambassador to the sport of cycling, what what sort of things can the sport of cycling do, in your opinion, to help people who that struggle with this? You know, we, we've spoken in the past about mental health being such a, a a priority these days. But now that you've thought about it and processed it a little bit. What, in your opinion, should teams, could teams do to help the riders? There's something else that I think contributes a big factor to the issues, and that's concussion. Like, before this started, I had three bad crashes in a row. And uh, I can say now that one of them was caused by a bike failure by the bike manufacturer. And I wasn't allowed to say it at the time. And like, obviously I get blamed for crashing, you know? Um, and, uh, but I landed on my head three times in a, like in quick succession, you know? And, uh, first and foremost, so from an actual, not, not trying to solve any problems or help somebody who already has it, it can be prevented first and foremost by really taking concussion seriously. I think there's been a lot of documentaries in other sports in, in, uh, American football in, of uh, it's an American podcast, football. <laughs> yeah. Like, like in what can cause some from preventative measures, first and foremost concussions, I tell you that it's caused a lot of people problems. I, I, I believe like guys who crash on the head and, and girls who crash on the head, you know? And um, I think there's always going to be a thing that it's a business and Riders are dispensable, you know. Um, people look at us as not humans, as kind of, whether that's fans, journalists, team managers. Like, at the end of the day, we are just, we're performing monkeys. That That's what it is, you know. Um, it's a business. Any sport is a business. It, it, it's marketing. And so you are dispensable. And on the positive side, we get, we, we earn a decent living. As, as cyclists, like even if you're a lower level cyclist, you you get to do what you love to do. With that comes the added risk. That's why you get compensated with, with kind of um, higher rewards, I guess. But uh, I think understanding people as humans um, is the biggest step, you know? Like, uh, like I think recognizing it, but like we, we talked about, you don't really recognize it until you understand it yourself, you know? Um, well, I think you're yeah, just, just understanding that the biggest thing is understanding that, that we're humans 
like there's a reason most people are professionals that they know their bike, they know their body, and to say just get on with it is a fucking hard thing. I know we have sponsors that have to sell stuff and they want put just to be told to get on with it when it's your livelihood. That's quite a big trigger, I think. Just 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 them five words, just get on with it. You know, it's it's something that's used a lot in cycling, isn't it? Like if if there's a crash, if the if the road's dangerous, just get on with it. If you have problems with your equipment, if it doesn't fit, just get on with it. If uh, you land on your head, you have to get back to the peloton before you can check your injuries because it's it's gone without you. Just get on with it, you know. And uh, I think that's that's the most dangerous thing on on, on many many different levels that can be that can be addressed. Yeah, and I think like, what you just said there is 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 so interesting. Like you look at. I mean, you look at where you're at now and, and the way you just described the sport of cycling and then you rewind to 40 minutes ago and we're talking about pretending to be Johan Maceo as a 13-year-old, right? Like that's, to me, and, and I guess my experience in, in sport has led me to this thinking, right, which is like what's the role, what's the purpose of sport in society? And it's certainly, you know, in this conversation right now, like it's that's not the point of sport the sport the point of sport is 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 for that 13 year old kid right to to want to aspire to this to to these great sporting heroes and 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 to be a great human um and and to be able to excel and have that motivation to do that right and i think that certainly in 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 the last years and as a byproduct of the increasing monetary value of the sporting world and our sport in particular right you, you 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 just become uh an asset you're not a you know yeah. human and, and 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 sport isn't about that sport is about making society better right um and so i think there's some some i mean yeah it's a, it's it's a big conversation and, and how you take steps towards writing that i'm i'm not really sure um and but i think that's certainly a discussion that that needs to be had right is 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 what is the purpose of this all yeah in the end oh you you know you say it's so you say it so beautifully. You're so good with words, aren't you? Like the opposite of me, like <laughs> you, know? you do, all right? Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've been, yeah, I've been practicing that. And I've been thinking about. It. I think I've been thinking about that a lot, right? Um, and and that's certainly like now. I mean, my, I mean, I'm, I'm no longer necessarily in in the racing world at all. This is sort of my closest connection to to the the, the racing and performance side of the sport. But I still work very much in sport and and that is 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 mission it's the mission of my business is is um you know uh using sport to help people understand the world right and and that's kind of is is the goal is trying to get people get children get adults even more so i think than children to think about sport differently because it's it's the adults who instill what you know the next generation um hold as a standard right if i think how influential my parents and i'm very fortunate how, if I think about how influential my parents have been on my life, right? And I think that's that's what it is. And, and that's, so yeah, that's, I mean, I guess that's probably why I spoke so well is because that's what, yeah, that's what we're, we're, we're trying to do, right? And I think that that's something that we more people need to have a conversation about at, at all levels of, of sport and kind of, you know, look at themselves in the mirror a little bit. Oh, mate, you've said it absolutely brilliantly. We need more gusses. <laughs> Well, Gus, um, that was a pretty amazing talk with with Mark. Um, what can I say about Cav? You know, we, we we've got away from that theme of the show um, that we had planned for him, but when something like Mark Cavendish sharing something as personal with us and our listeners as he did, that that's got to take priority. So I know it wasn't, you know, it was serious. It was real. And that's what I really like and, and motivates me to, to continue doing these podcasts. And, um, you know, that was, that, that was personal. And I meant everything I said when I just wanted one of those famous Mark Cavendish post-win hugs, you know, after that, after that talk that we had with him. But, hey, you know, we all have issues in our lives that we have to deal with. And I was never the rock star that Cav is. And social media obviously wasn't really that big of a thing compared until now. But him continuously being written off 
had to have been so difficult, especially in the age of social media coming coming to you know the the forefront. And I hope that this episode not only makes the issue of depression and mental health real, but also makes people think about that those clickbait comments that that so many people make. Because man, those cut to the bone, even to the biggest stars and the most famous people. So you know, treat people right. Be kind, and you know, if you're suffering, ask for help from the people that you love during those tough times. Yeah, I think uh, he made a really good point, right, about athletes now being commodities, right? And, you know, as you said, he's a rock star. He gets paid a lot of money to ride his bike. And when you're not performing or when you're not um, healthy, right, and there's this pressure to get back to it and there's this expectation, and I think that that's where... um, that's where sport is running into problems now. Is is it's lost, it's lost the humanity, uh, or the, it's it's lost the um, the treatment of its athletes and 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 uh, as as sort of human beings. Um, and I think you know it's easy to say that it's just sport and there are bigger things in the world. Um, but I think yeah, there are obviously bigger issues and there are huge things facing humanity. But as we've seen, you know, just in the last week um, with the NBA and 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 the women's um, basketball and a lot, I mean, widespread among sports, standing up and and talking about and, and making a, a point about issues, it does demonstrate that sport is important and it does have a role to play in society. I think, and and our sporting stars do have voices and they do have feelings and they do have uh, an opinion. Um, and so I think it's important to remember that. And I think that, you know, sport as a whole, um, and I hope, you know, certainly the cycling world takes pause for a second and, and, and listens to what Mark said and thinks about, you know, what the point of all of this is. And anyway, it's, um, it, it, it was great. It was a moving, as you said, it was, it was moving. And I think it's good to have someone at, at the very top of a sport come out and validate this because there are a lot of kids out there who never make it. There are a lot of people who, who who see there being something wrong with them and it being their fault and, and never really being, you know, kind of told that, that, you know, there is, this isn't something wrong with them. This is a disease. This is a, a, a problem that can be fixed as well, but you need to seek help for it. So hopefully as a result of that, people do, people do get out and, and seek help. And uh, as we said at the head of the show, um, you can seek help right now if you are having trouble. There is a Uh, A phone number you can call in the US, the National Prevention Lifeline. It is 1-800-273-8255. There's a ton of resources and and, and help that that can be made available very quickly. So I encourage people to search for that if that is something that they are dealing with. And just talk to people. You would be amazed at how much just getting some of this stuff off your chest helps and makes a difference. Um, so Bobby that was a great episode and appreciate you lining that up and thank you Gus uh, for for sharing your personal story as well you know when when someone like yourself and Mark Cavendish can admit this and and put it out there it's it's a big thing it's a big thing and I hope this this episode is is received very well and those people out there suffering with similar issues may be a little bit more aware that they're not the only person mm. with with you know, suffering. And it takes somebody like Mark Cavendish to, to get that across. Um, there's not many right. better things that you can do um, than to help, I, help people. Yeah. And I should add something there too, is like, once you do reach out and you start getting help and you start talking about these things, like it's remarkable how effective that is. Right. But like shit gets dark. <laughs> like, you know, if you just don't, if you don't do anything like I did, I didn't address this. Like, yeah, it, it, it can get, it can really take a hold of you and 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 kind of spiral pretty quickly and and to places that are like not great and that you didn't really think that you would you as a person like were capable of going right. So the moment you know for me when I sort of turned around and started doing something about it, it was very quickly how I was able to lift myself up and out of that. And obviously, it's an ongoing situation, but I think it's important that the, the hardest part of taking steps to get better was just simply asking for help. And it's ama- it's actually quite easy. And when you do it, it's quite effective and quite rapid. So don't, if, if, yeah, don't let it go is what I'm trying to say, I think. And that's it, everyone. That's all the time we have for this week. And hope you enjoyed and learned something from this episode. And 
a deepest thank you to Mark Cavendish for joining us and, and sharing his story this week. It was quite special. So you can find all our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your go-to favorite podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Continue to show your support by subscribing to the program and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can get at us on social media at that is Gus and at Bobby.Julik on Instagram. Reach out to us there. You know, any feedback, any thoughts. Again, please, if you need any help um, with anything like that, if you want to, uh, if you have any mental health issues, like there's a ton of resources online, as I said. Or yeah, again, shoot me a message. Anything you want to talk about, I will, I will answer. Um, until next week. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Angus Morton. Thanks, Angus. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. The wait is over. The Tour de France is here at last and Flow Bikes is the place to be. Watch all 21 stages live and on demand in Canada. In addition to the Canadian-only broadcast, viewers worldwide can have access to exclusive on-site coverage, live watch parties with Mike Woods and Swain Tuft, and a host of other behind-the-scenes content. Plus, Flow Bikes is the exclusive home of the Tour de France fantasy cycling game in the United States and Canada. Upcoming live events include Torino Adriatico, the Giro d'Italia, Tour of Flanders, and so much more. Don't miss out on the craziest fall of cycling ever. When you purchase a Flowbike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Don't miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That's flobikes.com forward slash Velo News. Velo News has been the American voice of competitive cycling since 1972, and they just launched an all-new premium membership program called Velo News Pass. Members of Velo News Pass get access to premium content on Velo News, discounts from partners like Scratch Labs and Giordana, plus your choice of any of the magazines produced by their parent company, Pocket Outdoor Media, which include Velo News. Triathlete, Ski, Backpacker, Climbing, Yoga Journal, and more. Loyal listeners of Fizzo get 15% off Velo News Pass with the code FIZZO15. Has to be lowercase. That is P-Y-S-O-15, all lowercase. Become a member at velonews.com slash activepass and enter the code FIZZO15, all lowercase, during checkout. That's velonews.com slash activepass and coupon code FIZZO15 to join.